What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome to episode 161 of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole, AJ, what's going on, gentlemen? Do good. 161, good man. 161. AJ, can Jeez. you believe that? I've been here for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you've, been, you've been part of the come up, you know? No, we were reminiscing on how long it's been and how old me and Mike are getting uh, before the show. But then I listen to other podcasts that have been going since like 2009 so yeah. and have over a thousand episodes. So I yeah. guess we have a while before that. Right. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, definitely seems like, I don't know, it feels like we haven't been doing it that long. But no. then like on paper, like it looks like it's a decent amount of time. Yeah. But then like you say, in contrast, it's like not. Right. You know, but when you think back on it, it's like, oh, that was a long time ago that we yeah. started this thing. Yeah, we had we definitely had a lot of uh, bumps and bruises along the way, but we're still mostly, rolling. Mostly when it comes to audio equipment, <laughs> <laughs> lots of YouTube, lots of YouTube. Yep. So we're doing a topic tonight that uh, we have not touched on, and sound looks like quite a while. Um, nothing too crazy new in it. Maybe a new drug or two, but um, we're going to talk through Parkinson's disease. And uh, it's been, it looked like at least maybe 2019, I think maybe. Almost three years. Oh yeah, almost three years since we've actually discussed this. So, um, you know, if nothing else, hopefully uh, we've improved our uh, charisma and diction since then. Maybe we've gone down. Maybe this episode's going to be way worse than the initial one. Well, okay. Well, now that's in my head. So thanks, Cole. Good thing I never go back and listen to him. So I wouldn't. That is a good point. AJ, you'll have to tell us. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so Parkinson's disease, and um, we'll kind of go through this. We'll go through the way we're going to have to start this is we're going to we'll go through some background information like we always do. But really, we're going to kind of go through all the medication classes, and then we'll towards the end we'll kind of talk about the algorithm and see how it fits into like initiation of therapy as well as um, you know how to augment or um, you know change medications and all that. So um, yeah. What do you want to start, Cole? Just some basic background stuff? Yeah, you can start with background. So Parkinson's disease is um, has some kind of cardinal symptoms, if you will. Um, you know, the acronym, if you will, is like is called TRAP. So tremor, rigidity, uh, akinesia, which would more commonly be referring to the bradykinesia that we see uh, in Parkinson's disease. And then um, the P stands for postural instability. So when we talk about tremor, um, it's typically something that in the early stages begins unilateral um, and eventually spreads to bilaterally. Um, and this is not a tremor that is like caused by doing action necessarily. Um, it can get to that point, but a lot of times the tremor actually is more noticeable at rest. So the, you know, the patient's arms are kind of like resting on their lap or, um, you know, just they're not doing anything with their, their, their arms or legs or what have you, then that's really when the tremor becomes more noticeable. You know, so, you know, a neurologist may tell the patient to calculate something, some simple problem in their head or something like that. So that they have to kind of not think about, they're thinking about that versus their actual hand. And then he'll watch the hands to kind of see if there's any sort of slight tremor. Um, you know, other disease states and things like that that involve um, some sort of a tremor may be more pronounced when the patient's actually trying to accomplish a task or whatnot. But um, yeah, the tremor at rest is kind of indicative of, of Parkinson's disease. Um, we also have like rigidity, which is sort of like the um, you know, range from either just stiffness to almost like this ratchet-like movement of the arm. So you'll hear that referred to sometimes as like cog, um, cogwheel rigidity. 
Um, bradykinesia is a reduction in the ability for the patient to do kind of like spontaneous movement. Um, you know, and that can start off as something as simple as, you know, the finger dexterity, um, you know, may not be as, uh, as it once was. And, and it's something that, um, you know, can progress, you know, and get worse and worse till it you know, affects more, um, in larger parts, parts of the body. But it's just that, um, slowing, uh, of the movement itself. And then it can even lead to like decrease in like facial expressions and whatnot. Um, postural instability is basically just the patient's inability to, um, you know, stand upright and, you know, can eventually affect gait and lead to falls. And, uh, you know, all those four things kind of are like the cardinal um, symptoms that we would expect to see with Parkinson's disease. They don't all have to be present at once, especially in mild um, cases, but it's something that eventually, uh, especially the tremor, the bradykinesia, rigidity, those are going to sort of like manifest themselves in in most patients with with Parkinson's as time progresses. Yep. And with that bradykinesia, the facial expressions, the decreased facial expressions will commonly be called uh, like mask faces. You'll hear that referenced. Um, and Mike mentioned the uh, dopaminergic neurons um, and the substantia nigra dying or becoming impaired. It's also important to mention um, another uh, common pathologic finding is the presence of Lewy bodies, which is important um, because it can lead to Lewy body dementia, which we I don't think we've ever done an episode on um, dementias and memory disorders, have we? I think. Uh, did we? I have to go back and look. I, don't I think know. we did like all. I think we did Alzheimer's. Right? Yeah, we probably did. Probably, uh, but we could probably do one on Lewy body dementia and, and various different types of dementia as well. Um, but thinking about those um, signs of Parkinson's, the trap um, diagnosis is based almost primarily around that versus around a uh, some sort of imaging. Uh, so first, they need the presence of bradykinesia by itself. Along with bradykinesia, they need one of the other three tremor, rigidity, or the postural instability. Um, They also need, or the clinician would also need to exclude other types of Parkinsonism um, or other types of tremor disorders. So we'll go into more detail on that in a second and what can cause that, but those do need to be excluded. The last thing is the presence of uh, supportive positive um, factors, supportive positive criteria. So at least three of these, either asymmetry of motor signs and symptoms, uh, unilateral onset like Mike mentioned, uh, it's progressive so it kind of gets worse over time, resting tremor, a good response to uh, the carbidopa levodopa which we'll talk about, uh, levodopa response for five years or longer, and the presence of levodopa uh, dyskinesias. So three of those, along with the others, uh, could lead you to a diagnosis of Parkinsonism. You know, and, and as far as the symptoms, you know, and the way they kind of manifest, obviously the symptoms we've already talked about are going to get worse and worse over time once you've made that diagnosis. Um, but you also start seeing like some non-motor symptoms as well. So once you've kind of established the patient has Parkinson's and you're kind of monitoring and following them over time, the the non-motor symptoms can also really cause decreases in the patient's quality of life. So, I mean, we think of things like cognitive dysfunction or even dementia. Um, you know, some patients may have 
mood disorders. So, you know, depression, anxiety, um, apathy, um, sleep disturbances, you know, at night versus fatigue during the day. Um, there could start to be like olfactory dysfunction. Um, it could be GI dysfunction, um, even like pain and sensory disturbances potentially. So there's a lot of other ways they can kind of, uh, this can start to other, you know, I guess, you know, physiological responses and whatnot that this can sort of affect over time. It doesn't, you know, we always, I think kind of hone in on the, the motor function symptoms of, of, of Parkinson's, but there's a whole slew of non-motor function things that can also affect patients and we can't forget those. Um, you know, it's it really something that it's a, um, interprofessional, you know, multifaceted team that needs to be involved with the patient's care to make sure that we're covering all of our, um, you know, bases and, and the potentials that the patient could be dealing with. And some of the drugs we use to treat it can cause non-motor issues as well, like hallucinations and whatnot, which yes. we'll talk about. Uh, but moving back a little bit to the to the diagnosis and excluding other types of Parkinsonism or tremor disorders, um, so you can have drug-induced Parkinsonism, which the pharmacist will be familiar with. Um, a couple of uh, drug classes in particular uh, can cause this. Antiemetics, like metoclopramide and prochlorperazine can both cause it. Also, certain antipsychotics like chlorpromazine, haloperidol, olanzapine, uh, risperidone can uh, induce uh, Parkinson-like symptoms. Uh, and with the antipsychotics, at least, you'll, you'll kind of think of the, the extrapyramidal, it'd be a type of extrapyramidal side effect. Uh, there can also be environmental toxicities. So manganese, organophosphates can lead to Parkinson-type uh, Parkinson symptoms. Uh, metabolic disorders like hypothyroidism, parathyroid abnormalities, um, tumors, strokes, traumatic lesions that involve the negrostriatal uh, pathway can cause that, and also progressive supranuclear palsy and others. But um, primarily, I guess what we'll, we'll kind of hone in on a little bit uh, would be the, the pharmacotoxicities uh, as well as like metabolic disorders and that kind of thing are common. So, you know, as far as general treatment principles, and we'll come back to this when we actually work our way through the algorithm, but there's no true, like, cure for Parkinson's disease, unfortunately. It's, you know, we're treating the symptoms, we're trying to, if we can, slow the progression or at least the patient's you know, interpretation of the, of the progression, um, and, and reduce those symptoms and increase the patient's quality of life as best we can. Um, you know, there's several different choice classes of medications. Uh, most patients eventually will, will end up on, um, levodopa, um, formulations and, and, and other medications like dopamine agonists and whatnot is, um, adjunctive therapy. But, um, because there's so many different classes, we'll kind of save it towards the end as far as once we've talked about the various classes, we'll save it towards the end as far as like how they all fit into the patient's, you know, treatment algorithm, if you will. Yeah, and um, just kind of thinking from a, I guess, pharmacokinetic standpoint, um, it's all related to dopamine as far as the motor side effects and a lot of the non-motor side effects. It's all related to dopamine, like we said. Um, and so when we're thinking about what we're going to be targeting presynaptically and um, in the synapse or postsynaptically, how are we going to use these drugs to promote dopamine or even use dopamine precursors? So L-DOPA is converted to dopamine. Dopamine can be broken down presynaptically by COMT, which is um, catecholomethyltransferase. I believe I said that right. Um, also by monoamine oxidase B, presynaptically into degraded dopamine products. Um, in the synapse, monoamine oxidase uh, B can also degrade dopamine. So that'll be kind of a primary target. You're familiar with MAO 
uh, A inhibitors um, or with MAOA, but primarily this will be related to MAOB. And um, some of the drugs at higher doses can affect MAOA as well. Um, but it's all related to dopamine. Yes, and and the uh, I was trying to pull up a, a study as well because dopamine, obviously being the main function, there there are a little bit of uh, you know mechanism mechanistically some involvement with like acetylcholine and some other neurotransmitters. That's really going to come into play when we talk about the newest um, treatment option available. But we'll come back to that when we when we um, get there. But let's start off with like one of the main you know well known treatment options for Parkinson's disease, and that is levodopa. Um, which usually is going to be given as a combination with carbidopa. So levodopa is the precursor for dopamine synthesis. Carbidopa is basically just something that can inhibit the dopa decarboxylase enzyme. So you're using that to kind of prevent that peripheral metabolism of the levodopa and allow um, its activity to last longer in the system and, and basically get therapeutic responses without having to use such crazy high doses of levodopa. Um, this is something that uh, there was, I can't remember the name of the plant. I'd have to look it back up, but there was actually a plant that they were using to treat this like way back hundreds of years ago um, when they first were, they didn't call it Parkinson's disease, obviously, but then they started noticing symptoms like this and they were giving this plant to patients to get, you know, improvement in their symptoms. It turns out the plant is really high in levels of levodopa. So I thought that was I think it's called marijuana, right? I, is it? <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> I don't think maybe. Probably has some effect on dopamine, right? Probably, but that wasn't the uh, that wasn't the plan that I was not thinking the plan. Of, but <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll keep that in our back pocket. But <clears throat> excuse me, so, um, seventy to one hundred milligrams per day of carbidopa is um, usually going to be what's required to inhibit that enzyme dopa decarboxylase, and so oftentimes patients will just take them as a combination tablet. So Cinemed or some of the other formulations um, are available. Typically, if you're using an IR or immediate release formulation, you're thinking at least three times a day dosing, if not more. The controlled release formulation um, is is a twice daily dosing, but sometimes increased based on the patient's need for symptom improvement. Um, there are are some uh, contraindications, um, one of which is to, you know, if a patient is on a MAOI inhibitor, and that's a non-selective one. So we're going to talk about, like Cole said, the MAOI-B inhibitors, but if you're on like a non-selective MAOI inhibitor, so for patients who maybe have like depression with atypical features or something like that, um, you cannot use one of those agents within 14 days of starting carbidopa, levodopa, um, or if the patient has um, narrow angle glaucoma. Um, those would be like two hard contraindications. Um, and then adverse effects, you know, really the big one that we have to deal with um, when it comes to the long-term use of, of carbidopa levodopa is dyskinesias, um, which not to be confused with bradykinesia, which is what we're trying to fix to begin with, but um, dyskinesia is, you know, basically going too far the other direction. Right. and um, Abnormal uh, movements. Ab causing that abnormal, yeah. As far and instead of lack of movement. Correct. So, um, you know, other adverse effects, orthostasis, dizziness, um, you know, patients may end up developing um, some confusion as the disease progresses, which could be just cognitive decline from the disease itself. Um, it also could be, in, you know, worsened a little bit with high doses of levodopa. Um, and then it can even cause the urine to change like a brownish, um, even blackish color. And, um, you know, which would be something to warn patients about because that would be pretty alarming. Pretty concerning for me, yeah. <laughs> personally, if I had black urine. Like, well, <laughs> I just think it's rhabdo. It's like, well, I'm dying. Yeah, <laughs> it's over. It's over. I'm not even gonna try. 
But um, like I said, the dosage forms, you know, typically we think extended release tablets for a lot of patients. We do have a, a, a true um, extended release capsule called Reteri. Um, Reteri is a, basically a combination of like immediate release and extended release beads that are in the capsule itself. So this is one that you could potentially open up and, you know, if a patient couldn't swallow a capsule or something. Um, and the thought here is that you can l- reduce the number of daily doses um, and maybe even like reduce the motor fluctuations that the patients may have in between doses. Uh, the problem is the cost. That's um, fairly expensive, especially when you're comparing it to the uh, other formulations that have been around for a long time and have generics available. But it's something that it's for some patients, if they have insurance, it may be um, a good option if they're having um, issues that with the other formulations. And we'll talk about what those issues may be in a little bit. But um, the Reteri is the newest uh, formulation that's available. We also have an inhaled formulation of levodopa called uh, Inbridia, um, which is basically used for what they call off episodes in patients that are already taking oral levodopa. So we'll talk all about off episodes here in a little bit. Um, but know that that's available, and we'll talk um, more about that one when we get to the off episodes uh, portion of our discussion tonight. But um, drug-drug interactions, um, we don't want to use with uh, dopamine blockers if possible, so things like um, metoclopramide or promethazine. Um, and then iron can decrease the absorption of carbidopa levodopa, um, as well as some other things potentially as far as like... Um, issues with patients who have H. pylori or like um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and some other things like that. Um, So the absorption of the levodopa could come into um, play, you know, later on if the patient's not responding well. So it'd be something that, again, we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, also it's important to make sure patients know that, uh, you know, it's going to take a few weeks for them to start feeling the true effects um, and efficacy of the medication. Um, however, if they stop the medication, the conditions, you know, and the symptoms will, will get worse very quickly. So making sure patients are adherent to their regimen. And, um, and then also um, you might get a slight increase in uric acid, but uh, a lot of times it's not going to be a, a big issue unless a patient is, you know, has a history of gout and they're not on something like a xanthine oxidase inhibitor or something else to lower those uric acid levels. Right. And back to the Riteria a little bit. Um, it is, is actually reasonably common uh, these days and has an important function. So Mike mentioned opening up the capsule and putting it in something like applesauce with, um, um, with Parkinson's, not only because it's a movement disorder, but also with dementias that can that can come along with it. Swallowing can definitely be an issue uh, for these patients, and I've seen it uh, quite a few times. So being able to open that up and sprinkle it on applesauce can be very valuable. And frequently, um, they'll start with the Cinemet, and then if they're having the too many off episodes, then they w- can switch to Riteria because it's extended release. And if they're insured and they've tried Cinemet and failed it, it probably will be covered. Um, a lot of these patients are older, so they're going to have Medicare, and frequently their copay may be very high. Uh, but there is a foundation called the Patient Assistance Network that works, I think, um, not only with um, movement disorder-related medications, I think a couple others, but it's pretty, um, it's pretty um, specific. But for patients who have Medicare, and qualify with certain uh, disease states and income level, they can get their um, copay paid for. So, uh, a lot of we're able to get a lot of patients um, on it because we, we work with it closely in my practice. 
Um, but there are a few issues that patients will run into um, despite their medication regimens. So one is wearing off, like we've mentioned, uh, with a wearing off phenomenon. Uh, this is when you have the return of symptoms before the next dose. So you've taken your first dose. This makes sense. It, it's probably worn off uh, too early. You're having symptoms before your next dose. There's also the on-off phenomenon, which is more of a profound, unpredictable return of symptoms without relation to the dosing interval. So it's not like it happens predictably in between doses. It just kind of happens. There's delayed on or no on responses. Um, That's a delayed or absent onset of the drug effect from a, a specific dose. Uh, This can be for a couple of reasons. It could be from delayed gastric emptying or just decreased absorption of the medication in the duodenum. Um, But that would be like they just don't feel like they're having a response at all to that dose that they took. There's also freezing, uh, which is a sudden um, occasional akinesia of the lower extremities. So um, basically the patients would feel that their feet are stuck to the floor while they're trying to walk or they're having difficulty like initiating their steps. They might call it start hesitation. So all four of those are things that providers treating these patients will run into, um, and they will have to kind of coordinate their dosing and adjust their medications accordingly to try to um, fend those symptoms off, I suppose. Yeah, and that's we'll come back to all of those as far as which agents to use. If that, if you know, a lot of it comes down to the carvedopa, levodopa dosing intervals and like dosing strategy. So we'll come back to all of those um, towards the end. But okay, so carvedopa, levodopa, that's the main you know medication that we think of when we think of long term uh, Parkinson's disease care. But we have a lot of other potential options, and uh, one of which is our COMT inhibitors. So, um, ketocol O-methyltransferase, that COMT is an enzyme that is also responsible for the um, prevention of that peripheral and central conversion of levodopa. And so, this is a, you know, a drug that, or these, this class is a drug that can inhibit that enzyme and basically allow the levodopa to, again, last longer in the system. Um, the, uh, in into into capone i can never say that word correctly in tapicone it, it always reminds me of um always reminds me a little bit of the godfather what, uh-huh. what were their names i don't corleone know. corleone yes yeah, so whenever i see i, I say in tapicone in my head i don't know if that's right but it always reminds me of Intacapone. corleone yeah so I, I feel like it could be the name of a mob boss that's uh, i like that yeah in tapicone okay so now i can say it correctly thank you cole um, but that's one of the agents that you probably would see, um, the most of there's an older agent as well that had a little bit, um, had potentially some more risk of like hepatotoxicity and things like that. Um, but this one has been around for quite a while as well. Um, all of these are going to be used only in, in a patient who's already taking levodopa because otherwise it doesn't make any sense to add this on. So these are adjunct therapies and, um, with in, in, in tecapone, I already forgot to say it. Um, the, uh, there Just is say Corleone. Corleone, yeah. There's a uh, a three drug combo available called um, Stelevo, and that's you know carbidopa, levodopa, and uh, intecapone all rolled into one. Um, you know, as far as you know, most patients, um, unless you know they're on that specifically, they're going to be taking this as a separate agent. But again, they have to be on some sort of carbidopa, levodopa formulation. They have to, or they're yes. going to make them an offer they can't refuse. Exactly. I'm going to take it all the way. And what, and what I mean by that is, it's not going to work at all. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, the, the thing is though, because the levodopa is going to be staying around longer, um, doses may need to be decreased by like 10 up to 30% sometimes after one of these COMT inhibitors are added because we, um, could increase the risk of dyskinesias and whatnot from the levodopa. Um, we also have um, opicacone, opicapone, which is the newest um, agent in this class. It was approved in 2020, um, and it, it's you know basically there again, same formulation or same concept as far as the previous um, medications in this class. It has to be taken with levodopa. Um, this one, they do say um, that the tablet it should be taken at bedtime with no food one hour before or after to increase the absorption. Um, and the uh, adverse effects are going to be very similar to um, patients that are already taking levodopa. Um, you're going to that dyskinesia, um, constipation, those things. Um, there's also a potential for an increased risk in um, creatine kinase levels to go uh, to go up, and then um, the hypotension syncope um, potentially could be worsened by adding this agent on. But same thing, we typically want to decrease the levodopa dose um, initially when we first add this on and then titrate the dose back up based on patient symptoms. Yeah, that's a relatively new one. Uh, we have some older ones um, that you're probably more familiar with from other disease states, but the dopamine agonists, uh, we have Mirapex, which is Pramipexil, Requip, which is Repenrol, and Nupro, which is the newer one, which is a ritogatine patch. Um, uh Pramipexol and Repinerol both come in extended release formulations, which could be beneficial for these patients. And then, of course, the patch is is longer acting. Um, but effectively, these drugs are going to act similarly to dopamine at the dopamine receptor site. Um, they have their side effects. Uh, they can cause somnolence, uh, nausea, dizziness. Orthostasis um, can be a big one. Uh, and, of course, anything that potentiates dopamine can cause hallucinations and dyskinesias. Uh, you can also have um, application site reactions from the patch. Um, there is some renal dosing for premiopexil to be aware of. Uh, under uh, chronic clearance less than 50, um, the dose is probably going to need to be decreased. Uh, but you're probably more familiar with the premiopexil and the repinerol from restless leg syndrome. And they're dosed at night for that reason. There's also um, other agents in this class, um, like cabergoline and things like that. But those aren't. I mean, they have some application in Parkinson's, you know, especially like historically. But now we we typically th those are considered to be like um, ergot derivative um, dopamine agonists. So they have more risk of side effects. There's more frequent dosing requirements, and also there's a, there's some potential concern with like. Um, cardiovascular risk and some things like that. So it's something that uh, we kind of use these non-ergot um, derivative dopamine agonists for typically, but um, in case you're wondering if you run into those medications, that's something that, uh, you know, they, they are in the same class, but they're they're structurally different. So yeah. we've definitely seen them before, but yeah. not as good of a safety profile. Definitely not. Um they also have uh, one dopamine agonist referred to as apomorphine um, that is approved basically as an on-demand relief of those sudden like off periods that, that Cole was talking about. So not like an end-of-dose um, off period or, or weaning off um, you know, period. It's, this is where those like you know, you can't really predict it and the patient just all of a sudden is having their symptoms um, return. Um, it's not you know close to a 
necessarily their next dose of anything and there's no like way to predict it. And so this is sort of like considered like almost like a rescue administration, if you will. Um, and you know, the, there's a sub Q injection, um, and there's also a sublingual film formulation as well. That one's uh, under the brand name, um, kind of Moby. And, uh, these, these are going to be administered by a healthcare provider, um, during the initial dose and do in any kind of like dose titration that needs to happen because there is a, a high risk of hypotension and syncope. And so we basically just want patients being monitored um, while they're on this. But, um, you know, if the patient is uh, in the clinic and you're trying to basically achieve a, a quote unquote off state, um, you know, having the patients avoid like their Parkinson medications um, after midnight the night before and then holding them, you know, throughout the morning when they go to the clinic uh, and any kind of other, you know, adjunctive medications they may use basically will cause their symptoms to come back. And then you can use this, um, one of these agents to see if you, um, sort of get the patient to their, their next, uh, you know, it's in symptom relief, like right away to right. get them to their next dose of whatever their medication may be. Right. So, um, adverse effects just like before, but, um, the hallucinations and all that stuff are still potentially, and then also the chest pain, um, can happen, but make sure the patient's getting their first dose in the clinic. Right. And that's the dopamine agonists. So we also have MAOB inhibitors, um, obviously to prevent the breakdown of dopamine and potentiate dopamine. Uh, there's three of them. Uh, one relatively older one, selegiline. Uh, there's also a newer one. I think it was approved in 2006 called Azelect, Resagiline. I don't think its patent has run out yet. Um, and then there's a the newest, which is uh, Zedago, Safinamide. I think that was from 2017. Um, with selegiline, it's twice a day dosing um, uh, with breakfast and usually lunch in the early afternoon. Uh, it can be kind of stimulating, so you don't really want to give that one close to bedtime. And it's only approved um, to be used with levodopa as adjunct. So it's uh, if it's used for monotherapy, that's off-label. Um, the Azelec, though, it's only a once-daily med. It can be used um, as initial monotherapy or adjunct to levodopa. So that's kind of a distinction between the two. Uh, same with Zedago. Um, it's uh, 50 milligrams once a day, but it can be bumped up to 100 milligrams, um, and it can be used by itself or as an adjunct to, to levodopa. And they have some interactions, too, um, some significant. Uh, they can have interactions with the 5-HT serotonin receptors, um, specifically with meperidine. It, they can have a very significant, uh, which can be fatal, drug interaction. Um, also with tramadol, methadone, mirtazapine, and cyclobenzaprine. Um, and then also tyramine rich tyramine containing foods which you might say to yourself i thought that was with the maois uh, that we hear with depression which is primarily maoa inhibition um, or non-selective mao inhibition um, but these maobs at higher doses can inhibit the maoa um, and so high levels of tyramine can cause hypertensive crisis so I usually think of cheeses and wines. Am I thinking of that correctly? I always think of, uh, so yes, cheeses for sure. And then um, like certain types of meats. So I always think charcuterie for people who are like super bougie and eat that nonsense. Okay. I, I always think of bougie foods, cheeses. Well, I might be making up wine because maybe it just goes with charcuterie. So I'm thinking cheeses, charcuterie, and then there's probably some wine involved too. Probably. But maybe that's not what has tyramine. That's the, that's the kind of party I walk into, look around and go, nah, it's not for me. And I just walk back All out. you see is hypertensive crisis and then you get out of there. <laughs> yes. Like, you guys it. better not be taking any MA. If even one person is on an MAOI here, I'm going to be so mad. 
Um, yeah. and, and that's why, like, when Cole was saying the selegiline is dosed five milligrams twice a day, like, kind of as a max dosing, because when you start going doses higher than that, that's when you start getting that A inhibition. Um, so, the, you know, that's kind of interesting. Those, those um, higher doses is what starts to make it le- less selective. Um, but usually speaking, if you're at Parkinson's doses, that's not as big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've even seen a case where a patient was on something like, um, I think it was venlafaxine that was for their depression. They're, they were stable. They were doing great on that, but they needed to be on selegiline specifically for their Parkinson's disease. And they were freaking out because in the interaction check, you know, it still pops up as a horrible interaction because mm-hmm. of the serotonin activity, and whatnot. But, um, I found a couple of case reports basically showing that they've used those two together at lo- the lower doses of selegiline and didn't have any issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, that's still, there's, you need to use caution on them. I'm just saying, take our word for it, but, um, there's some case reports out there. Selegiline is also a little higher risk to cause confusion in older adult, on older adults more so than the other two. Um, so just another little safety profile thing related to it. Yeah, but these can also, I don't know if you said this already, so sorry if I missed it, but some dyskinesias as well. So when you start adding these as potential as, you know, adjunct therapy to patients who are already on carbidopa, levodopa, um, that could potentially make uh, the dyskinesia um, worse unless yep. you're adjusting the dose of one or the other yep. accordingly. So one of our uh, newer kids in the block, if you will, is the Astra Defiline. Um, Norians, I think, is the brand name for that. And um, this is, I want to say 2019, late 2019. Um, and it was uh, approved for adjunctive therapy to patients who are on levodopa um, for that wearing off um, symptoms. So as the patient's getting close to their next dose, like Cole was talking about, if the symptoms start to return, then patients were, could use this and, and uh, you know, hopefully maintain that symptom um, uh, that absence of, of symptoms up until their next dose. And, uh, you know, been, then, then they can take their carbidopa, levodopa and be on their way. But, um, I, I think there was, I don't have the study in front of me, but I want to say it was around an hour or so that it prolonged, um, the effects of the medication and kept them from having that wearing off, um, symptoms. So if you're in that window, then, uh, that definitely, oh yeah, I hear it is right here. One hour. Never mind. I don't know why I'm, I don't have it in front of me. It's literally right in front of me. I'm <laughs> such an idiot. Um, but, uh, can decrease by um, one. I read the study earlier, like the abstract of the study mm-hmm. earlier. That's why I said I don't have it in front of me. Cause I it was w- like literally the next thing you were going to say. Yeah. Was, was that? Looked down at my notes. At least notes. your train of thought is good. Yeah. See, you guys, I, I, you, you know, got it. it's there We somewhere. don't even need references in front of us. Well, obviously. We, <laughs> we like obviously, to make sure we're not saying the wrong stuff. That's not quite true, right? But um, yeah, adverse effects, dyskinesia, uh, again, uh, you'll see that as a common theme, uh, but also uh, the GIA complaints and then hallucinations and insomnia. So um, hallucinations obviously being a big one because other medications can also cause this, but it uh, this medication itself is a standalone class, and so it's uh, an adenosine A2A receptor antagonist. So it's completely separate than anything else that we have um, currently. Um, and one kind of weird uh, interaction is for patients who are smoking, um, there is an interaction with this medication. And if a patient is smoking uh, around a pack a day, so 20 cigarettes or so or, or more, um, they can decrease the steady state um, systemic exposure by 38 to 54%. Mm. So if a patient all of a sudden stops smoking, um, there's a potential that the uh, dosing needs to be 
um, adjusted so that side effects and all that stuff don't start becoming a big factor. And if you think about the, just back to the hallucination side effect, which all of these carry, it makes sense, right, relating to dopamine. Because if you think about um, patients with um, hallucinogenic psychosis or what, what the mechanism is around their hallucinations, it's too much dopamine. So we're going to give them antipsychotics to block that D2 receptor, decreasing the dopamine, helping with their hallucinations. So we're literally doing the opposite here we're potentiating dopamine also the same reason why antipsychotics can cause parkinson type symptoms because they're decreasing dopamine and sometimes too much um another drug that pops up in um with antipsychotics that is also popping up here um is cogentin or benztropine so we have some centrally acting um anticholinergics and you might say huh elderly patients with cognitive disorders doesn't really seem like the best candidates for anticholinergics they're not but there can be some specific situations where this could help with symptoms and it's just a benefit risk uh, situation at that point um but it uh it can be dosed up to three times a day but you would start it at bedtime um it's used primarily for the tremors um so you of course it's recommended to avoid use in elderly um so it's going to be a risk benefit thing if you're using this for for a patient um but the adverse side effects are going to be anything related to the anticholinergics, drowsiness, potential risk for confusion. Um, so, of course, be aware of that. There's another that is not really used. Um, trihexafenidyl uh, is another um, centrally acting anticholinergic that is available. Um, they appear to improve motor function in Parkinson's disease, uh, but the, uh, the effects are pretty inconsistent. So, um, uh, probably reserved for pretty specific situations. So the last medication we'll touch on is amantadine. So this is a medication that has some kind of random uses nowadays, um, but basically the the benefit that I always think of with this medication is they can reduce the dyskinesias caused by like levodopa or dopamine agonist or what have you. Um, so it's there are cases in like where patients have very very mild symptoms um, of Parkinson's disease where you may see this used as monotherapy. It's not widely done, but uh, there's a section on the up to date uh, review of some of the medications for initial treatment that does talk about amantadine. So if you're interested in that, check that out. But I always kind of think of this as like a potential add on to reduce those um, dyskinesias that are caused. So you're not having to reduce the dose of levodopa and things like that if or if you've tried that and it doesn't work and you need to maintain a certain concentration of those agents to keep their symptoms you know under control then you could look at this as like an add-on therapy to reduce the side effects of those medications right so they can stay on the carbidopa levodopa without issue yeah um, adverse effects, dizziness, insomnia are the two kind of big ones that people talk about. Um, there's also, in more rare cases, like toxic delirium that can happen. And then, um, in there, in, again, rare cases, there could be like this cutaneous reaction where patients have like this, um, you know, like reddening color of the skin. And then also it ends up leading to skin molting, um, which is uh, not really what we want. <laughs> so we've got. Not just delirium, but toxic delirium, mm -hmm. and then skin molting. Mm -hmm. We're not snakes. Actually, snakes don't molt; they shed. Yeah. Come do on, bugs call. molt? Uh, arachnids do. Arachnids molt. Call that. I knew you would know. <laughs> tarantulas do. They, tarantulas leave, they leave back what looks like another tarantula in the cage. No way. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Looking. Do you have a tar tarantula? Not the moment. I have not had the moment. I've had says. them several times throughout <laughs> my life. Pink knee tarantula, rose hair tarantula. <laughs> you, you know, Borneo bat eaters. Just, no. the, just the normal stuff. 
But yeah, all right. So just what every what every twelve year old boy has. Listen, right? the thing about it is, if it wasn't for arachnids and reptiles and all that good stuff, I probably would have never even gotten into medicine. So, all of you listening right now, <laughs> go go thank a snake. Go thank a snake. Let's put that just on a core console T-shirt. Just don't touch it. <laughs> yeah, don't touch it. Okay, so that was the drugs. Um, do you want to sum it up with this algorithm before we get to some augmentation stuff? Yeah. So. If we're thinking about, you know, very, very mild cases, you know, there are some situations where we can kind of get away with um, monotherapy that isn't does not involve like levodopa. Um, and so if we think about like, um, you know, again, this is very mild where like basically the symptoms are not even, you know, causing, you know, impairment or anything like that. But, um, some of our agents like the, uh, Recigeline, which actually does have a generic, I looked it up while you were talking. Oh, cool. Um, I thought it might, but I can't so, Um, that one. And then like Silagiline, we said does not technically approve for monotherapy, but you probably still will see this use monotherapy. Um, uh, but drugs like that could potentially, um, be utilized early on. But once you start having like you know, uh, motor symptoms and things like that. Um, that's really where we have to escalate therapy a little bit. So when we think of like, um, the bradykinesia rigidity, um, if a patient is younger than 65 years of age, now, depending on like the resource that you might look for that, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of places like up to date and whatnot, they say 65 as well. However, the other sources will use like 60 or 50. Um, so there's different cutoffs as far as like when they, say a patient is young or, or, or not young anymore. Um, and so if bradykinesia, rigidity, the, the main symptoms, if they're less than 65 years of age, um, we could consider a dopamine agonist as like monotherapy before we jump to carbidopa, levodopa. And the reason for that is because the dyskinesias and, and other side effects that we have with carbidopa, levodopa, um, you know, are something that are more prevalent or more pronounced, especially early on in like younger patients. And so, and with thinking these patients are going to have to be on this, you know, for life, um, starting a more quote unquote mild medication, if you will, may be, um, a good option for these patients. So we're not having to jump right to carbidopa, levodopa with multiple times a day dosing and all that. So a dopamine agonist could be potentially used. However, if the patient is over 65 years of age, um, then we pretty much jump right to carbidopa, levodopa and go from there. And if, if the younger patients are start on dopamine agonist and you know, that's not enough, then we're going to be, um, adding on carbidopa, levodopa after that anyway. Um, if tremor is the main kind of, uh, you know, motor function that, that's noticeable or if they're, you know, that's kind of the first thing that's, that starts to happen to the patient, um, you know, the anticholinergics could be a potential option for our younger patients less than 65 years of age. Um, and so anticholinergics uh, to kind of start with, again, the next option being carbidopa, levodopa. Um, and then if the patient is over 65 or, or I should say 65 or over, then we're jumping right to carbidopa, levodopa. Um, from there, you know, we're thinking about things like our postural instability, gait impairment. Um, and, you know, again, if, if that's the only issue that's noticeable and, and impacting the patient's quality of life, then we may be able to get by with dopamine agonists by themselves in patients that are younger than 65. Um, but uh, 65 or over, we're going to be jumping right to carvodopa, levodopa, and then also trying to get them with um, some sort of like physical therapy um, if possible. I will give a, a shout out um, real quick to uh, a program that we have locally here called um, uh, Rock Steady Boxing that uh, one of our uh, colonized uh, NAJs um, uh, professors uh, from 
I guess our former professors, um, definitely somebody I consider a mentor and AJ is still current uh, professor, um, since he has the luxury of still being in school. And, uh, um, he's actually doing this, he's been a part of this program for quite a while. Um, and cause he's got Parkinson's disease and he said it's been fantastic, but it's, um, out of a gym locally called grip box and it's called rock steady boxing. It's, it's designed specifically, um, with exercises or like, um, like drills, if you will, that are made to in, increase balance and help patients with dexterity and, um, you know, different, different, uh, things like that when it comes to their actual motor functions of Parkinson's disease. And, uh, I think there may be other programs like that locally now, but they were the, definitely the first ones in Charleston. So grip box, well done. You guys, uh, um, the guy that, uh, owns that Cody and uh, his wife, his wife's actually a physician. Cody is like a, a athletic, uh, training stud. So they together have, uh, formed this really awesome program and a lot of patients locally have, have benefited from that. So, um, physical therapy, obviously if they're going to go the traditional physical therapy route, just making sure they have, um, you know, the PT, uh, um, that you're sending them to has, um, direct knowledge of Parkinson's disease and, and whatnot. Yeah. Pretty cool thing. Yeah. Rock steady boxing. Rock steady boxing. So, um, they can of course have various motor complications that we referenced before. So now we're going to pop back into the kind of the four things that they can have and talk about some ways that we can mitigate those or that, um, the prescribers can mitigate those. Um, so we talked about the end of dose wearing off. That's probably the, seems to be the, the most common one that patients are familiar with, but motor fluctuations re- relating to their medication wearing off. Um, you can increase the frequency of the carvedopa levodopa dosing. Some patients will take it many times uh, during the day, especially if it's the immediate release. I mean, you know, six to eight times or more, um, just depending on when their wearing off times are. Um, or, uh, which is commonly done, you can switch to the extended release um, Riteri formulation, which still, with that, you can dose it four or five times a day, depending on um, on uh, when they're, if they're having wearing off or how well it's working for them. Or you can add an adjunct therapy like we talked about, the COMT inhibitors, the MAOB inhibitors, dopamine agonists, and the neurians. Um, some patients have acute off episodes that uh, just happen, and that would be where the apomorphine comes into play or the embresia, the L-dopa inhalation. If they're having the delayed on or the no on response, which is where they take the medication and it's like it just didn't do anything, um, could be because of the, the gastric emptying or, or that sort of thing, um, try giving um, the uh, carbidopa levodopa on an empty stomach. Uh, try using the ODT formulation so we can bypass um, some of that um, as far as the gastric emptying goes, uh, or avoid the sustained release carbidopa, levodopa. Those are all options. Uh, with the start hesitation or the freezing episodes, they may need an increased dose of the carbidopa, levodopa, um, or you could add a dopamine agonist or an MAOB inhibitor onto that and then also utilizing the physical therapy along with assistive walking devices or even sensory cues like rhythmic commands or stepping over objects um, to kind of help with the hesitancy to to begin walking. Um, Sometimes patients can have a peak dose dyskinesia, so when the dose is at its peak, that's when their dyskinesias get the worst. Um, So maybe providing smaller doses of carbidopa levodopa if they have their other symptoms under control, um, reducing the dose of an adjunctive dopamine agonist, or this is where you would add the amantadine to um, hopefully decrease those dyskinesias and allow them to continue their carbidopa levodopa therapy. 
One thing I will add too to the delayed on or the no on response is there's there does seem to be some interaction where if a patient has a high protein diet that that can limit the absorption of carbidopa levodopa. So initially giving it on an empty stomach, like Cole was saying, is one tactic. And if that's still not enough, then maybe talking to them about exactly what it is that their diet consists of and then working towards a, um, you know, if they do have a high protein diet, then, then less protein overall in their diet to hopefully maximize the potential absorption of that carbidopa, levodopa. So just throwing that in there. It's a, there's a whole section on that in the, uh, I think up to date that had talked about that and explains, you know, why that's important and stuff. So trying to be as thorough as possible in this episode, right? Cool. That's what we do. <laughs> we try to be thorough, but, uh, yeah, AJ, we miss anything. Not that I know of, no. We're okay. the slides. Nice. Then it must be perfect. <laughs> must be perfect, AJ. Right on. Be. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you guys have any questions, comments, or anything, definitely reach out to us. Um, and then if uh, you know if you want to reach out to us over email, those will be in the show notes. If you want to talk to us over uh, you know social media platforms, you can definitely um, reach us on any of those. Um, if you want to send us a text directly, the area code is 415-943-6116. And um, check out the Patreon account, um, which is $3 a month or I think it's like $30 for a whole year's access. And um, you get access to all the actual like recorded lectures that I do for like my PA students and whatnot, um, plus all the slides and all that good stuff. So it's a little bit more traditional classroom type feel to it uh, if that's more your style. Um, but uh, check that out if you want. And um, we use that obviously to... You know, increase the productivity of the show as far as the equipment and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, thank you guys so much for the support. And uh, if you do like the show, make sure you rate us on iTunes or whatever you listen to us on. That helps us out a lot as well. And um, we will catch you guys on the next one. Have a great one. <laughs>